Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. A commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. Picture this. You're deep in the Amazon rainforest, in a place called Tambopata in Peru. You're on an island in the middle of a river, covered in thick rainforest. And in amongst the dense green foliage, something catches your eye. Something you've never seen before. Something tiny. So you peer in for a closer look. I want you to imagine a perfectly circular white picket fence. But this thing is made out of some kind of silky substance. And then in the middle, you have this tall tower. Almost looks like the Eiffel Tower, but circular. It's got a very pointed, narrow top. And at the base of that tower, there's something covered in this silk. But it's tiny. Even our best macro lenses couldn't quite make out what we were looking at inside there. And nothing like it's been seen in nature before. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. The podcast that's always on the hunt for mysterious and beautiful things. I'm Emily Knight. We've seen so many different patterns in nature, but never a pattern like this. It was beautiful. A lot of people made the comparison. I don't know if you've ever seen that slow motion of like milk being dropped into a thing of milk or or water. And you just see all these little splashes on the side. Like it looked like a piece of art. In this episode, we're taking a step back from looking at wild animals and instead casting our eyes over some of the things they make. We've curated some of the finest artworks from the animal kingdom, masterpieces crafted by tiny artists, and put them on display. And the first piece in our gallery is a mysterious, intricate structure called Silkhenge, named for its resemblance to a Neolithic earthwork with a ring around the outside and a tall tower in the middle. A bit like Stonehenge, but small enough to balance on the head of a drawing pin. Here to help us understand this first piece is Phil. My name is Phil Torres, and I'm a tropical biologist turned science communicator who happens to spend a lot of time in rainforests around the world. A friend of mine named Troy Alexander was the first one to actually see Silkenja take a photo of it. He uploaded it to Reddit, and it went viral overnight because no one knew what it was. You know, on the internet, everybody loves to be an armchair biologist and say that they're an expert at everything that's out there, but... A lot of people were chiming in and had no idea. So when we started to ask actual experts, we got all sorts of answers, ranging from, oh, it's some kind of mushroom to some kind of plant to it's a lacewing or a moth. And one of the answers we got was that it was a hoax, that this thing is not real. So I decided to lead a team of biologists down there to really figure out what is this thing. To get there, you have to take a seven-hour motorized canoe ride upriver into this incredibly remote research center called the Tambopata Research Center. And then you have to take another smaller boat to get to a tiny island. And this island is where Silkhenge was first seen. It was 
smaller than half of your pinky nail. To give you an idea of how small this thing is, on an entire island in the middle of a dense rainforest, and we were trying to find it. So we started at the exact point where it was first photographed, and then we just started doing small circles, and we went up and down the trails that were there, and we used our flashlights to basically try to create some kind of shadow contrast against whatever we're looking at. We didn't have a lot to go on, so we really just had to use all of our observational skills to try to find something that looked like that. And believe me, we had a lot of false hits. There was a flower there that comes down from the canopy, and when it kind of fell on the ground, it had a similar shape. So we thought we'd found it. It wasn't. Again, there was some fungus out there that was growing on the side of leaves that had circles kind of in a similar shape. We thought maybe that was it, but it wasn't. And then finally, on the side of a trunk of a tree, we saw this tiny little thing. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, we were screaming. We were so excited because if we found one, we could find more. If we sat here and watched this long enough, we would maybe see something interact with it, give us an idea of why it evolved to look this way. I mean, it, it also just meant that this was this was real. This wasn't a hoax. This was something that is there. It is unique, it is mysterious, and it is in this little patch of rainforest that has been ignored and just never really seen and looked at before. And we said, okay, now that we got one, let's see what else we can find. And we started doing more and more loops. And by the end of that night, I think we'd found a couple dozen of them. I'll be honest, we were still very confused about what it was. So we took a couple of them back, put them in a little container and took them back to the lab to take some really detailed photos of it. But when you use the lenses that we have to photograph small things, it really pops and you really get to see all of its details that are in there. It was just so stunning, but clearly very, very functional for whatever it does. With the new high definition photos, and Phil's videos up on YouTube, news of this tiny masterpiece began to spread. And suddenly, reports started coming in of other silk hinges all over South America. We had people in Brazil, people in Guyana, reach out and say, hey, I've seen this thing too. A lot of entomologists would say, we have photos of this. There's actually a specimen in um, the University of Texas insect collection that was collected in the early 90s. They just have it on a leaf in the collection and there's a big question mark next to it. No one really knows what it is. On a trip to Ecuador, they found them there too. And again, Phil brought one home and set it up in the lab. We'd set some lenses up, video recording them. And as we were doing that, we all of a sudden started seeing that something in there was moving and kind of pushing out on one side of, of the base of that tower and then pushing out on another side. And we were like, oh my gosh, oh my something's God, coming out. Right now. Oh my God. Oh my God, dude. Oh so we just watched dude, and so waited. This is so cool. And then sure enough, after it's about a half an hour, the bottom. Oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> we see these tiny little orange this legs come out. And then Hatch, more little Hatch. orange legs and something crawls come out. Come on out, push. And it was a tiny, tiny baby spider. And it wasn't just one, we had twins. Well, we got twins, so. Oh there were these little orange things with these tiny little eyes. They were about the size of maybe three grains of salt combined. We were high-fiving, 
we like we were proud parents of of these tiny baby spiders instead of being like it's a boy we were like it's a spider the more we observe this Sokenge, the more fascinating it becomes. And, and one of the things that really stands out is that some of these egg cases have one spider in them. Others have two. We've seen up to three tiny little spiders inside these egg cases, which is incredibly unusual for spiders because most of the time their egg cases are full of hundreds of babies. And the female's probably full of multiple eggs, so she has to build multiple of these structures. And that was something that we would find is that when you find one you would often find others maybe a meter away in the rainforest or two meters away. And that's their evolutionary survival strategy. Why is it so different from other spiders? No idea, but it is different and that makes it extra special. Spiders are something that I, I admit, I grew up afraid of spiders. It wasn't until I moved into the middle of the rainforest, realized I was surrounded by them, that I was like, I should probably pay a little more attention to them. And once I did, I've never looked back. I, I think the fact that they have this tool built into them, this silk that they can do all sorts of creative things with that seems so complex, that would be really hard for any of us to do, but these spiders are able to pull it off. You know, a, a lot of scientists shy away from anthropomorphizing, but I, I believe that throughout history, from the beginning of humans, we've been inspired by nature. Nature has shaped our art in so many different ways, from the colors to the patterns to the shapes, all that sort of thing. So for me, absolutely, I think this is a type of art. If you think of the intricacy of making a structure like this come out of your butt, that's not easy. They've got their spinnerets on the backside and they're crawling around and they're having to lay silk in a very specific pattern. And they follow this kind of algorithm and it comes out to be this really beautiful structure. To this day, we still don't know what species it is. We've done genetic analyses of it, but unfortunately there's so few spiders out there that have been genetically analyzed that we can kind of get an idea of what group it belongs to, but we can't really narrow it down. We don't know why it looks like that. Is it to keep things out? Is it to draw things in and trap them in there? We don't know. We're just seeing one aspect of this entire life cycle. And I, I think that's a really beautiful thing. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where today we're discovering the animal kingdom's most impressive artists. It's fun for us to think of spiders, particularly the silkhenge spider, as tiny sculptors, crafting their minuscule masterpieces in the dead of night. But wishful thinking aside, they're not really artists. 
They're animals, building a structure to aid their survival. They're running on instinct, not inspiration. Silkhenge may be very beautiful to us, but it's unlikely the spider has the capacity to understand human concepts like beauty. With other kinds of art, though, this line in the sand between human and animal is not so easy to draw. Take music, for example. We can get moved to tears because of music. We can have very clear memories thanks to music because it latches on in some mysterious way. So I think we're underestimating this capacity and I think it is just like language, it's a capacity that's a very human-like thing that I think we are obliged to understand. Henk Jong Honing is a professor of music cognition at the University of Amsterdam. He's been looking at some very human things and wondering if animals can do them too. We know a lot about language evolution, we know a lot about components of language that we might share with other animals. But music is sort of a luxury, and that makes me nervous. I don't think music is a luxury. Even if you can't dance in time or sing in tune, your ability to take pleasure from music, your sensitivity to rhythm and melody, is an innately human trait. It's what's called musicality. And, yeah, and Charles Darwin went one step further. He said that musicality might even precede both music and language. So he thought it was even a more fundamental thing that we share with a lot of animals and that it has a long evolutionary history. I think he's right. <laughs> and the trick is like, how can you show that? How, how can you come up with evidence in support of that idea? That motivates me. I want to know. As part of a new scientific field, biomusicology, Henkyong collaborated with colleagues around the world to test Darwin's theory that musicality might exist outside the human world. And the evidence began to emerge, one animal at a time. Uh, Irina Schultz and Snowball. Irina, come on out and say hello. Ten years ago, uh, there was yeah, the first animal that indeed confirmed Darwin's hypothesis. This must be a snowball. Yes. Uh, what kind of a bird is that? This is a medium sulfur-crested cockatoo. He loves to dance to the Backstreet Boys. Oh! If you've been anywhere near the internet in the last decade, you might have seen a clip of Snowball the Cockatoo. This is a clip from the US TV show The Late Show, where Snowball is wowing the audience with his dance moves. Bobbing his head, stamping his feet, popping and locking along in perfect time with the Backstreet Boys. If this animal hears his favourite music faster, he moves faster. He's slower, he moves slower. So he's really aware of the regularity there. There's really the first scientifically documented animal besides humans that also has a sensitivity to the beat. Around this time, Henkyong was studying whether newborn babies had innate beat perception. Hooking them up to an EEG machine with electrodes on their tiny heads, he measured how babies' brains responded to a simple musical beat. We could show that newborn babies already have a sense for the beat. They are surprised if you remove a note on the downbeat and somewhere else in the rhythm, they're not surprised. So they have already a strong expectation that there will be regularity in the rhythm. And that made me think like, oh, maybe, maybe there is a biological basis. Maybe there is a predisposition for musicality that all humans have. But what about the animals? Was Snowball a one-off? Or are there other animals out there who share our sense of rhythm? Henkyong began with our closest relatives, the primates. 
I started to look for a primate lab where they were willing to do this kind of an experiment. And that turned out to be not so easy. <laughs> but after a while, I found at least one colleague who was sort of willing, who was as eager as I, in the sense that he also wanted to know uh, if this was the case. And he, and he has a, a macaque lab. Macaques are a small old world monkey with brains in many ways very similar to our own, which is why they're often used in scientific research. So we know about diseases, about Parkinson, about epilepsy, deafness, all these things, thanks to these animals. So Henkyong did the same EEG monitoring experiment he did on the babies, on the macaques. Yeah, long story short, <laughs> there were things that went, went okay, there were things that went slightly wrong, but in the end, disappointing to me actually, although you can't say that in science, but I expected that they would react in the same way as the newborn babies. But still, they lacked beat perception. So Darwin there was wrong, in that sense. <laughs> I still don't believe myself. I think we do something wrong, but okay, we have replicated. I have to believe the data. But now yeah, the, the way we are thinking about it, that, that it's probably something that is more recently evolved within the primates and that it might be something that chimpanzees, which is, uh, we have a common ancestor slightly more recently, might have parts of that. And that's what, what some colleagues are figuring out at the moment. So even though macaques have a very similar brain structure to humans, they don't seem to have beat perception. Don't invite a macaque to lead the dancing at your wedding, basically. So how is it that we seem closer in musical ability to birds like Snowball? People start to come up with ideas. What, what is it that we share with cockatoos? And one of the things that we share with them that we do not share with other primates is focal learning, for instance. So there was a long time, there was a theory that it had to do something with the brain networks that are involved in how we imitate sounds. And also cockatoos, they can very nicely imitate sounds. Eh? They can do accents, they can even sing arias. <laughs> They're really great imitators. And they have particular uh, connections between the motor cortex and their, and their voice system, the Cyrix, to control that. Humans have that as well, but other primates do not have that, at least not so controllable. So that was the theory for a long time, the focal learning theory that said that all animals with focal learning could potentially hear the beat. Then another animal showed up who seems to have a sense of rhythm. Another mammal this time, but definitely not a primate. There was Ronan, the Californian sea lion, who is not a focal learner, but clearly, in this case, I think the famous video of, of Ronan is uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, Boogie Wonderland. They start the music slightly faster and she's immediately on top of it. And if it's slower, she's immediately synchronizes with this music. I met her a few years ago, very enthusiastic animal that really wanted to do the experiment again. So again, waiting and sitting very still. And then the music started and it boom, on the one. <laughs> and quicker than I could do. So he was so very dedicated and sharp in, in, in listening and getting pleasure out of it, apparently. The bad news of Ronan being able to do so is that that theory of focal learning is now sort of likely anymore. So we're back to square one. And that's actually the state of affairs that we are at the moment. Yeah, we have not really a good explanation of why some of these animals can learn beat perception and, and get pleasure out of it, and why others do not. Why is it so difficult for other primates? We have not a clue. One thing is for sure, when we look at our own species, we love to dance together. And although there are still so many mysteries around the evolutionary basis for this, Henkyong has some theories. 
For some reason, if we synchronize with another human, if we dance together, we feel more empathic towards each other. And that also has an effect on the bonding of the group. And there's a theory that says that we humans, we started to live in two big groups. So we couldn't uh, groom each other <laughs> on a daily basis anymore. So we needed another medium or another behavior that allows us to sort of bond with our family and friends. Music stepped in there and facilitated this sort of group bonding level behavior. So are there animal musicians? Where does musicality come from? Henk Jung and his team don't exactly have any of the answers yet. But he doesn't seem to mind. It's like archaeology, yeah? you find a piece of the skull and then whoops, <laughs> the theory is down the drain. But it is fascinating to uh, reason about it and, and sometimes you get little pieces of the puzzle. I, I like a question better than an answer. <laughs> For our final story today, we're in northwestern Australia with one of the most prolific artists of the bird world. This is the sound of a bowerbird, one of a family of birds that take their name from the elaborate constructions they build on the forest floor, called bowers. They're made of sticks, but they're not nests, because they don't raise chicks in them. They're more like a piece of set design, which the males build and then dance in front of to impress the females. Different bowerbirds have different ways of jazzing up their bowers. For some, it's height. For others, depth. For the satin bowerbird, it's all about colour. He decorates his bower with as many blue objects as he can get his beak on. Berries and petals and leaves are all scattered artistically about. Even ballpoint pens, clothes pegs and blue plastic bottle caps make the grade. But this story is about the great bowerbird. His artwork is a little more conceptual. Instead of wowing the female with splashes of colour, he dazzles her with an extraordinary visual illusion. And we're going to try to unravel his trick. Dr Laura Kelly is an expert in animal illusions. We tend to start with our ears and listening for where the bowers are. So males tend to build their bowers under bushes, but then near those bushes they have a tall tree that they tend to perch on and they produce these really loud calls called advertisement calls. And these are directed at the females so that the females know where to find the males' bowers. But we can also use these to locate the bowers ourselves. And sometimes these bowers can be quite well hidden under bushes. But once you actually find them, you're amazed at how you missed them. The bower is a tall arch woven out of sticks in front of a kind of corridor called an avenue that can be up to a metre long, with walls running down both sides. The avenue leads to the display court where the males do their mating dance. There, the females are met with a carefully constructed display made of white shells, grey stones and bones. Initially, when we started photographing the bowers, we noticed that these objects weren't distributed randomly with regards to size. And what we found is that smaller objects are closer to the entrance of the avenue, so closer to where the female stands, and that they increase in size as distance from the female increases. So you've got things getting larger as they get further away from the female. 
This is the first example of a visual illusion created by a non-human animal that's used in courtship. The birds place the objects in size order. The further they are from the female, the bigger the object. We're used to things appearing smaller when they're further away, but the great bowerbird is messing with those perceptions. It's a trick called forced perspective, and human architects often use it to make structures appear bigger and more impressive than they are. If you've ever been to Disneyland, you might have been taken in by Cinderella's castle. It looks really big when you're stood at the bottom looking up. And the reason for that is because the bricks and the windows that the castle is made of actually get smaller as the building gets taller. And so your brain is assuming that these are all the same size. And so when you're stood at the bottom and looking up, your brain thinks that all of these things are really far away, but they're actually just smaller. But it gives you the illusion that the building is much higher than it really is. And these kinds of things are used really regularly in ornamental gardens and things as well. Once you start seeing forced perspective, you'll see it everywhere, basically. We just don't really notice it a lot of the time. You might think that the bowerbirds would want the bowers to look really big, like Cinderella's castle. But their illusion doesn't quite work like that. It's puzzling. Cinderella's castle is what we consider sort of a reversed perspective illusion. So this is where objects appear further away because the visual angles are decreasing faster than you would expect. And what the bowerbirds are doing is they are maintaining the visual angles. So and that's what makes it a bit harder to know exactly what the visual effects are because there's not many examples where visual angles are held constant. So we either tend to decrease them faster than expected um, with increasing distance or increase them faster than expected. So this, this maintaining them the same size is a, is a bit more unusual, but it's definitely going to be doing something to your assumptions of the size and the distance of objects. It's just a bit harder to know exactly what those effects are going to be. From the female bowerbird's perspective, peering down the avenue, all the objects would look a similar size. What effect that has on how she sees isn't exactly clear. Laura's hunch is that the purpose of the illusion might be to simplify the female's view, to avoid pulling focus from the male as he struts his stuff. However it works, Laura's interested in where this behaviour came from. In terms of how this might have evolved initially, the closely related spotted bowerbird has big piles of white snail shells at the entrance of their bower and they have these in really big piles so it's not like a flat display court or anything and we think that in that species these piles are there to alert females to where the bowers are so that makes the bowers easier to see. So you can imagine a situation where with the great bowerbirds that perhaps they originally also had piles of things at the entrance to their bower, but then they might have realised if those objects are spread out, that then that creates a nice uniform background for the females to view their display against. And then because the males spend a lot of time within the avenue looking out onto the display court, they might have slowly moved objects around so that the display court is easier to see and so you can imagine how over time that they might have slowly evolved this ability to actually arrange these objects in a size distance gradient 
because this lack of variation in the visual angles actually means that the background is far more uniform. And so anything that the male presents against that is going to be easier to see than if all of the objects were just jumbled up randomly. Forced perspective isn't the only trick up their sleeves. They're also master manipulators of colour and light. The males actually line the inside of the bower walls with sticks that are slightly reddish. And these sticks are redder on the inside of the bower than they are compared to the outside of the bower. And what these red sticks actually do is they create a light environment inside the bower that's slightly redder than the environment outside of the bower. And this actually changes their perception of the colours of the decorations that the males are displaying. With bright colours and high contrast, it's no wonder the females are intrigued. The reason it works is because of the way eyes have developed. Bowerbird eyes, but also our eyes too. We often think of illusions as being these very complex things, but in reality all they are is the shortcomings with our visual system. So our visual systems have basically evolved to extract relevant information from the environment as quickly as possible. And the visual systems of other animals are also going to be adapted to their own environment to extract information that's relevant to them. And there's always going to be errors or shortcomings in those systems that can be exploited. Understanding how animals like the bowerbird respond to visual illusions can help us understand how they see the world and might be able to give us clues to understanding the differences between their brains and ours. If they experience certain visual illusions in the same way that we do, then that would suggest that there's similar things going on in both the eyes and the brains. Whereas if they don't see things the same way as us or they see it in the opposite way of us, then that can suggest that there's different things going on and that we're not all perceiving things in the same way. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight, and our stories today were sculpted into being by me, Eliza Lomas and Tom Bonnet. Next week, we'll be exploring the often fraught territory of extinction. We're meeting some animals that we've lost, ones we're trying to save, and ones that might just be making an unexpected comeback. Join us then. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 